Hello, my name is Gary Mitchell. I'm an associate editor with EBM, and I'm delighted this time to introduce you to our guest for our podcast, Dr. Robert Tycross. Dr. Tycross, perhaps you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, indeed. Good morning, and very pleased to be with you. Uh, I, I uh, Most of my medical career, in fact, was in palliative care, hospice care, uh, since 1971 until I retired uh, 30 years later. Uh, so this uh, subject of uh, assisted dying is something which, um, well, it's of great interest to me because of my clinical experience. Um, yes, thank you very much. Um, this podcast will be discussing, as you say, assisted dying, which uh, is quite timely, really, given that on Friday, September the 11th, 2015, the second reading of the assisted dying bill uh, will take place in the House of Commons. Dr. Tycross, perhaps a, a good place to start would be uh, to explain a little bit about what assisted dying means. Yes, well, it's a technical term. Uh, in the medical literature, it covers two uh, forms of dying, uh, physician-assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia. Those are the two forms. Uh, with physician-assisted suicide, uh, the patient or the person is given a prescription, a fatal prescription, Voluntary euthanasia is when the concoction is injected intravenously by the doctor. Within the debate, which is coming up in the House of Commons in September, that broader term is being used in a narrow way. For some reason, the people bringing the bill didn't want to call it assisted suicide. Uh, They decided to call it assisted dying, but it is uh, strictly limited to the suicide type of assisted dying. I wonder, could you summarise really the aim then of the assisted dying bill, um, which is coming before the House of Commons on on September the 11th, as mentioned? Yes, indeed. Uh, It's uh, only for England and Wales. Uh, Scotland uh, has separate legislation uh, for these sorts of matters. And in fact, they voted out an assisted dying bill just, uh, just three months ago, in fact, the end of May, and Northern Ireland also has uh, a different legislation when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, okay, so it's England and Wales, and the bill, if passed, would allow a terminally ill adult to receive a lethal prescription for self-administration, but they'd be supervised by an attending health professional Now, you have to read these bills several times to discover what everything means, but it seems to me that the attending health professional is either a doctor or a nurse. So nurses may well be involved, as I pointed out in the editorial. Now, the key prerequisite, the key criteria for assisted suicide is a life expectancy of less than six months. The patient doesn't have to be in physical or mental distress. Also, the bill is not about long-term progressive conditions such as multiple sclerosis or dementia, and nor does it extend to incurable conditions such as post-traumatic tetraplegia. Uh, so it's, it's very narrow in its in, intent, uh, life expectancy of less than six months. I'm just thinking people who are terminally ill um, should probably have the right to self-determination um, to decide when and how they die. And if I'm right, I think opinion polls indicate that about 60 to 80% of people in the public are in favour. What are your comments to that? Uh, Well, it certainly does seem to be a no-brainer at first glance. 
But the more you look at it, the more worried I get and the more worried an increasing number of other people are getting. Okay, surely we should have the right to self-determination, how and when we die, when we're terminally ill. Yes, it, it makes sense. But, but... We have to remember that self-determination or individual autonomy, the terms really mean the same, it's never absolute unless you are the only person living on a desert island. Once you live in a society, other people have to be taken into account. And it's, you know, common knowledge. It's commonly accepted. Indeed, the law of the land dictates this, that if other people are likely to be harmed by your self-determination, then your self-determination can be limited. But when doctors look at it in the UK, it's no more than 25-30%, that sort of order, who are in favour. So you have to say, well, why is there this difference? Why is there this difference between the general public and the opinion polls and the doctors, and in particular, the palliative care doctors, when those in favour, it drops down into single figures or nearly single figures. Okay, so perhaps perhaps you could elaborate a little on, on why you're, you yourself are against the change in the law. Well, numerous reasons, but I think uh, top of the list, uh, I believe legislation will do more harm than good. I believe that legislation will increase negative attitudes towards the disabled and the frail elderly. And I believe that incremental implementation is inevitable. And that uh, rather heavy-sounding phrase, incremental implementation, is often referred to as mission creep or the slippery slope. We may be legislating in September to do one thing, but I believe it is inevitable that within years we'll be doing more, the law of unintended consequences. Perhaps uh, I could expand on my first point, that legislation will do more harm than good. I I was uh, in palliative care for 30 years, uh, and I came across people who refused palliative care because they were fearful they'd be done away with. People refused to come to clinic to see a palliative care specialist, whether doctor or nurse. And I've talked to other people just recently, uh, and uh, this is a common experience of uh, palliative care uh, doctors and nurses, people refusing it because they're scared they'll be done away with. So if Without an assisted dying bill, which would permit those who wanted to to do it, but wouldn't force those who didn't want to to do it, uh, if there is fear and refusal to go to a palliative care clinic because even without an assisted dying bill, then surely this will increase if an assisted dying bill uh, goes through Parliament which will inevitably enhance the perception of doctors and nurses as potential killers. So perhaps that's top of my list. Then there's a matter of prognosis. The the bill says less than six months, uh, but we all know that if prognosis is more than a few days, then it becomes increasingly inaccurate. Now, in the United States, Oregon has had assisted suicide since 1997, 
and they keep uh, statistics, obviously, uh, and uh, 10% of the people who get their prescription because they're within six months of death, 10% live longer than six months, but not just a day or two longer. Some are living two to three years. So that shows, even with the broad term, terminally ill, expected to die in six months, it's wrong in 10% of cases. But if you go to medicine generally, there are wildly inaccurate prognoses. A friend of mine uh, died earlier this year of cancer of the prostate. Ten years ago, he was given a prognosis of two years. And there are numerous examples of that. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, an everyday thing, wrong prognosis. So, you know, the fact that prognosis can so easily be wrong should be uh, a cautionary note. Also, most patients change their minds when in receipt of high-quality palliative care. So we have to remember, as doctors and nurses, that an expressed wish by a terminally ill person to hasten their death really means they actually want it. They want to be heard, to express their frustrations and fears, to be understood. So again, if you have an assisted dying bill and you have doctors who are pro-assisted dying, then I fear that they won't be so attentive to the real need of the patient, which is to be heard. And I wonder if you'd comment, what are your thoughts about people who are living with a disability? I've always been interested that disabled people are very anti, not all, but uh, this comes out whenever it's debated, and it's been debated several times in the House of Lords since the turn of the century. The disabled are very much against it, and you say, well, look, they haven't got a prognosis of less than six months, or most of them don't, so what, what are they concerned about? Uh, and uh, I went to some lobby at the House of Commons a couple of months ago, and I was amazed at how many disabled people were there in wheelchairs. And they really see this sort of legislation as a threat to them, even though they're going to live for years. And they're concerned, it seems, with attitudes, societal attitudes. They have been at the receipt of negative attitudes. They're second-rate citizens. They're a burden on society you know, get out of my way sort of thing. And they fear that negative attitudes towards disability uh, will increase if there is an assisted dying statute. And I think they're right. And that leads on to the whole problem of coercion. Coercion is a generic problem. It's not just that some disabled feel they'll be pressured into it the fact that they're a burden on society will be increasingly emphasized and so on. There's a real risk of coercion of the terminally ill, both doctor on patient and family on doctor. A Dutch doctor, and remember in the Netherlands, they have had legal euthanasia since 2002 and it was practiced before, and in Belgium likewise, so we can learn a lot from the Netherlands and Belgium. A Dutch doctor said this, 
In the past, if I suggested euthanasia, nine times out of ten, the patient would choose euthanasia. Now, when I suggest palliative care, they choose palliative care. And I think that sums a lot of it up for me. We give subtle messages, subliminal messages, and the doctor can, almost without realizing it, persuade the patient one way or the other. And then in Belgium, uh, many more families now consider dying as undignified, useless, and meaningless, even when it is peaceful. And the demands on the doctors for fast active interventions, particularly for elderly parents, are increasingly common and direct. So you're getting changes in attitude, potential in the doctors uh, and in society. Well, it's very powerful. Dr. Tycross, I want to take you back. Um, you talked about um, incremental implementation. Um, I wonder if, what your comments are on that. Yes, incremental implementation or mission creep. Well, I think it's crucially important to recognize that this is inevitable. You read what the activists want, they see this bill as but the first step. That has been stated quite clearly. And remember that Dignity in Dying, the pro-assisted dying organization, was until a few years ago called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society. And one reason why they're just talking about assisted suicide is because if you go first step for voluntary euthanasia, there is more resistance. So they will want to extend the law to include euthanasia. They will want no arbitrary restriction to a prognosis of six months, which there isn't in the Netherlands and Belgium in any case. It's, you know, the, the, the criterion is intolerable suffering without hope of relief. No time limit. Okay. And then if you read uh, what people are now saying, uh, they'll continue to campaign until people with early dementia are able to make an advanced decision for euthanasia at a later date when they've lost mental capacity. And increasingly, over the last year or two, they're going to continue campaigning until anyone over 70 or thereabouts who is tired of life will be able to obtain a lethal prescription. So, you know, if you're voting for step number one in September, you're voting also uh, for steps two, three, four, five, and who knows what beyond that. And, I mean, you've got to be aware that the bill is but the first step. Well, very powerful. Um, I'm just thinking about... Um, what would your thoughts be, Dr. Tycross, on assisted dying for people uh, living with incurable psychiatric conditions? I suppose uh, I never thought about this until I started getting information uh, from the Netherlands and Belgium. It's all there in the literature. Uh, as I said, uh, the essential prerequisite there for voluntary euthanasia is an intolerable and curable condition for which there is no reasonable hope of improvement. So there's no limitation in terms of prognosis. And 
Uh, according to one news report in the first part of this year, uh, 18 people in the Netherlands died at a special psychiatric euthanasia clinic. And that's double the number last year. And there are almost 100 patients on the waiting list. Uh, I haven't got much more information on that, but an article in BMJ Open reviewing requests for euthanasia by psychiatric patients in Belgium gives the diagnosis in 100 applicants. Depression and personality disorder were the most common. But other reasons why psychiatric patients asked for euthanasia was schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, Asperger's syndrome, obsessive-compulsive disorder, complicated grief, chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, only about half of those applicants had their requests accepted. Uh, we're not told whether there was a variation in the, uh, the diagnosis. We're just told the diagnosis for all 100. But I find that just shattering that they're prepared to offer euthanasia to people with depression where people agree that if you are depressed, then you don't have mental capacity because the depression biases you. For personality disorder, for schizophrenia, for Asperger's, complicated grief. I mean, I can't, uh, I, I, I can't believe that this is happening. But as one former member of a regional euthanasia review committee in the Netherlands said a year ago, Whereas the law sees assisted suicide and euthanasia as an exception, public opinion is shifting towards considering them as rights with corresponding duties on doctors to act. And he said, don't go there. Of course. So, so a no really to the change in the law. Um, but what about the, the sort of distress and stories that we hear about and uh, see in the media? The most appropriate response to horror stories surely is to increase the availability of specialist palliative care, not change the law. Now, it's interesting that Lord Falconer, who introduced a similar bill just over a year ago in the House of Lords, uh, according to him, the primary reason for wanting to change the law is not uncontrolled pain, but loss of independence and being reliant on other people. And this, in fact, uh, has been shown to be the case if you look at the data from Oregon. So, yes, there may be horror stories, but the primary reason, according to Lord Faulkner, for wanting to change the law is not uncontrolled pain. Uh, but surely, when all said and done, uh, compassion must have the last word. Uh, yes, indeed. Compassion must have the first word and the last word. But compassion alone is not a good basis for law. It's impossible to create clear boundaries. For example, this uh, terminally ill restricting to six months, that'll go. It's impossible in the name of compassion to restrict the boundary. So for me, at least, not everyone would agree but for me, palliative care and assisted dying are mutually exclusive philosophies. 
Palliative care is based on the belief that life has meaning and purpose up to the moment of death, whereas assisted dying doesn't. And I believe that expecting health professionals to deliver both palliative care and assisted dying, in other words, to face in two directions simultaneously, is simply too big an ask. Okay. And what do you hope uh, the healthcare professionals, and in particular nurses, uh, will do in the run-up to September 11th? Well, at present in the UK, the law provides a clear boundary. And I accept that it may occasionally be crossed by doctors, and indeed by nurses, and by others. But the boundary is unambiguous. And I would say that it's perfectly consistent to argue that assisted dying is ethically legitimate in some extreme cases, but it would still be wrong to change the law. So it would be better to continue to allow hard cases to be taken care of by various expedients than introduce new legislation which would inevitably become too permissive. Now, given that's my position, I would urge all of those listening who are concerned about the overall negative impact of the proposed bill, first to visit a, a website, a website called nottoassistedsuicide.org.uk. I'll repeat that, nottoassistedsuicide.org.uk. And that will fill in with additional information and also to write to their MP asking them both to attend the debate on September 11 and to vote against a change in the law, abstaining is not enough. Thank you, Dr. Tycross, for, for joining us this morning. Um, and thank you to our listeners uh, for listening in in this fascinating um, uh, conversation. Um, I just want to direct you to Dr. Tycross's recent editorial for EBN entitled Desire to Hasten Death which was published online on the 11th of August, uh, 2015. And that can be found on our website, which is ebm.bmj.com. My thanks again to Dr. Tycross. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thanks for listening. My name is Gary Mitchell at EBM. Thank you. <laughs>